Welcome to Fandom Media. David. Hey everyone, Fandom Media back with another show. This is our capacity, I'd say. We can cover four at once. That's about as much as we can handle. That's because there's so much good TV out there and we're gluttons for punishment. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Legion. It's a fantastic show. It's an interesting show for us to cover because none of us are particularly into the superhero genre. None of us have really watched... Jessica Jones or Daredevil or Luke Cage, none of these shows, but we really like Legion. Let me tell you why I like it so much. Generally speaking, I'm not excited about superhero-y movies and action-y movies. Sometimes they're really good, but I care really more about character drama than special effects and superpowers and all this stuff, you know. And sometimes that stuff makes for good character drama, but I usually find myself turned off on these types of shows. But this one I wanted to give a chance because it's... Noah Hawley, who made Fargo, which was an outstanding drama, and it's on FX, and FX has a really good track record. And sure enough, first episode really impressed me, and I found a couple quotes here by Noah Hawley that really sum up what the show's doing and what I want out of a show. He said about this show, The journey isn't necessarily racing toward a battle with an entity so much as embracing the battle within. That's a great quote. Yep. Which is often what happens in superhero action-y type stuff. You get an origin story, you kind of introduce to the world, the characters, powers, and then the villain, and then there's a big fight in the end. And this one isn't necessarily, I mean, maybe there'll be a big fight in the end, but really what we're seeing isn't this build-up to a fight against some bad guy. So far, I was not even 100% sure who the bad guy is. What we're seeing Mm -hmm. is this character coming to terms with his own psychological condition, you know? Which is extremely severe, and also coming to terms with these extraordinary powers he has, which, you know, as we saw at the beginning, they were trying to convince him we're all delusions. They were were making him, feeding his delusion by convincing him that more things were delusions. Now, here in there, there are some action moments and superpowers are involved, but, and so lots of other people might also be interested in this, but it's really doing what I want to show to do. Another quote along the lines of what we're talking about here, he said he did want to avoid, quote, sending a message that all conflict can be resolved through battle. There is a sense in a lot of these stories that everything always builds to a big fight. I wanted to find a story that was as exciting and interesting, but doesn't send a message in the end that might makes right. And so on top of these sort of like uh, thematic elements that I really appreciate, this approach to it, it's also a beautiful production. You know, everything, yeah. every you could see that it's putting a lot of effort into every aspect, the, the costume design, the colors, the music, the editing. It's, it's a, a really ambitious project, and I'm really excited to be watching it and talking about it. David? Throughout this episode, we're going to go over the thematic elements, we're going to go over the characters, we're going to go over the mysteries of the show, and at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about the original script for the pilot, which is a really fascinating read, as well as our other usual meta elements. People who listen to the podcast normally would know that we usually start with the meta elements, we just decided to put them at the end, because this is a bit of a long episode. And I also posted a survey on the most popular theories over on the Legion subreddit. I'll put the link in the episode description and I will talk about the results in our next episode as this episode is covering three whole episodes and it's just awfully stacked, but I'd love to get your responses. Arguably it's four episodes because that first one was a double, right? So it's <laughs> yeah. like basically the equivalent of four episodes, <laughs> a lot to cover. And like Sean said, we're excited to talk about it. Narrative. 
One of the questions that I ruminate on a lot throughout this show is the question of what is real? What is reality? What is sanity? What is identity? You know, all the itties, basically. <laughs> and as much as I wonder, you know, is Sid real? Is the devil with the yellow eyes real? They are real to David. They are real to the viewer. So I don't know that the questions matter a whole lot, but I think they are fun and they have different implications on how the show is going to play out. I definitely agree. I think that the show is doing a wonderful job with the ambiguity of, like you said, what is real and what is and isn't real doesn't necessarily matter in certain, in certain ways, but it certainly does in others. And it's fun to figure out what's what. Another thing that doesn't really matter, but we can't help but think about, is what time period this is set in. And this is a very timeless story, although it is less so after episode three, with Dr. Bird actually giving some dates there. But Noah Hawley did set the specific rule that there would never be a clear definition of what time period the show took place in. What they wanted to have, and this is a quote, is... So it may be today, and it may be a city we know, but we can't see it clearly because he doesn't see it clearly. So you might see 60s elements, or 80s elements, or 40s. You might see computers from today. It's not a one-to-one comparison to our reality. If you think about it in terms of slightly altered reality, where technology developed a little bit differently starting in, say, the 40s, than maybe the, you know, the current technological revolution that we're going through, imagine it going a bit differently. Which makes sense that if you have people with mutant powers, that they're going to help things along. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> people would have anti-mutant technology, things like that. In addition to the nature of what the exact reality or time period of the show is, some of the reading I did is that since we're seeing this through David's mind, it's just how he sees things or remembers things. I might remember, you know, a memory I have of my dad when I was a kid. I might envision him in a different set of clothes than he was actually wearing based on how I think of my dad. Does that make sense? Or I might even think of my dad right now in current days wearing something from the 70s, even though he's just wearing something from modern times, but my image of my dad. And so a lot of what we see is just the way David would remember things, not necessarily the way it really is. And David is especially unreliable as a character. So we even add more to the differences in visual presentation of the time period. Absolutely. And there's clear evidence the more you look this show is really sneaky, and I think it's taking the fan experience of subtlety and, and sneaky things on screen to another level. Uh, we'll, we'll be dropping some hints throughout this episode of things that were really pretty much impossible to notice within while watching the episode. You can only see them by seeing screenshots later and that sort of thing. Now, another important point here, David seems to have memories that conflict with each other, that they can't both be true. And that's part of this whole picture of not being entirely sure what's really happening. And and I really like that. Something that's really cool about this show and, and some other shows along this line, when they are kind of ambiguous about stuff, a lot of times it makes me realize the effort that's going into it. To keep bits of information hidden while still revealing a lot, keeping you engaged but presenting a mystery, takes some careful writing, some careful directing and editing, and I think they're doing a good job with it. It reminds me in a lot of ways of Westworld, if anyone watched Westworld, it also was like putting a lot of information out there. And as you're watching, you started to question, wait, what's really happening? Is this a different timeline? And uh, that sort of mystery really gets you engaged. And it, for me, makes me want to watch every episode twice. It makes me want to talk to people about it. I come up with theories. I want to hear what other people Only think. Only twice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two or three times and take notes. And yeah, I really like it when a show can 
get me that intrigued. Uh, it's TV just in general is so much better than it used to be. But when you have a big production like this, it's actively trying to get you to think about what's going on. It's it's really impressive. I think a meta example of what you're saying is that we had a lot of trouble figuring out how to organize the topics for this episode because yeah. they all really bleed into each other. They're all really related to each other. And it's really hard to disconnect and compartmentalize, say, his memories with what the other people around him are dealing with as well and who those characters are and whether they're real. Also related to that is the very reason why we're covering three episodes together is that it was hard for me personally to separate and compartmentalize what I knew about the show, which gave a lot away after just that only the first episode. Now that they've had several episodes, a lot more, they've, they've been able to kind of build a picture. It's, it's still confusing. It's still hard to know what's happening, but it's a lot clearer than it was. The characters are more defined. <laughs> they, may not, they may not be real, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we at least have an idea of, of there's some consistency with their behavior and, and all that. <laughs> Speaking of them maybe not being real, here's an out-of-context quote. From Noah Hawley, none of the other characters that I've surrounded him with are from the comics. It's sort of an invented world. Now, he didn't mean that. He meant that this isn't the X-Men universe. But I do wonder how much of this is David's invented world. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I wonder how they're going to reveal it. It's going to be little bits at a time or whether it's going to be like these huge revelations all at once, like in the season finale. Uh, to, to clarify something you said earlier, not sure that everyone knows that originally the character Legion from the comic books was the son of Professor X, which explains his incredible powers. But as Ash just said, it doesn't appear that Professor X is going to be part of the show. However, the father's identity isn't revealed at this point. So that door is open. But at this point, we shouldn't be predicting that any of those X-Men characters will appear at all. A lot of the characters have parallels and similarities. They have thematic similarities to X-Men characters. That's true. No Holly and other people involved in both X-Men and Marvel FX have said they're trying to keep a clear delineation. That they don't want this show to be bound to storylines happening in movies. The movies aren't going to change their course because of whatever happens in this show. That they're wanting to use this character in this world and create a work of art with it, but they're not necessarily trying to incorporate it into the X-Men world. That said, Brian Singer, that is the main person in charge of the X-Men world, has said that Legion and the other upcoming X-Men series will tie into and relate to future X-Men movies, whether Deadpool or X-Men sequels. So it could be that they could incorporate things from the shows rather than the shows having to deal with the movies. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. They have lots of options. But from what I understand, they just didn't want to be bound to anything. They wanted to it's, present this show the way they wanted to present this show. It's know? much like Fargo in that Noah Hawley took something that is a created world and has concrete characters. And he took the essence of that world and made something very similar, and but very different and better. Unlike yeah. Fargo, he's not claiming this is based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yet. Yet. Uh, <laughs> one thing that this show does really well is it has so many references and homages and sometimes they're just influences but we wanted to go into a bit of those awesome references yeah like, let's let's do that very obvious one the main character sid barrett sydney barrett that is from pink floyd yeah the not, <laughs> not just from pink floyd but from a pink floyd member who had a bit of a history with mental illness Pink Floyd, in fact, was a big influence on the show in general. Noah Hawley had Dan Stevens, Dan Stevens, who plays David Holler, listen to Pink Floyd. 
as part of preparation for the role. And he has described the music of Pink Floyd as how he envisions what's going on in David's mind. So it's definitely a big influence. We even see an actual quote from a Pink Floyd song in that when David is getting that needle put in, they say, just a pinprick is very similar to the line, just a little pinprick, which is exact quote. Comfortably numb. Classic song. <laughs> also from a Clockwork Orange, Clockwork's Hospital, a lot of Stanley Kubrick influence. Yeah, just in general, just all over the place, really. And then there's a reference that was very exciting to me and I didn't actually catch or realize was on purpose, but the set designer said that they were taking inspiration from Amelie. Oh, that's I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. That seems kind of random and cool, but... <laughs> <laughs> I can totally see the similarities when I think about it in the colorful nature and the relationship between Sid and David and all that. Yeah. You can also see elements, obviously, of Wes Anderson and that's in, in that relationship. Another one that I don't know if it was an active intent, but I feel like a lot of the show is similar to the movie Conspiracy Theory, a movie that had uh, hmm. Patrick Stewart, for one, along with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. And in the show, in that movie, um, Mel Gibson's character was delusional and schizophrenic, and he had all these conspiracy theories. Julia Roberts was a reporter, and he kept trying to tell her about these things. And of course, some of his theories turned out to be true. And <laughs> so the bad guys kidnap him, and there's even a scene where he's in a pool being interrogated by Patrick Stewart. You know, it reminded huh. me of the scene when... David Haller was in the pool being interrogated. Uh, I assume that's maybe coincidence. I haven't seen any active reference to it, but I couldn't help but notice the parallels there. I think this is an active reference here, is that there's a comic strip by David Lynch, whose work this definitely takes inspiration from, called The Angriest Dog in the World. <laughs> it's and not the world's angriest dog in the world? <laughs> it's not that, but it is interesting because of the dog theme that we're going to go into throughout the episode. There is a dog theme. Very interesting. You're right. I'm cu very curious about that. The Angriest Boy in the World also made me think of the movie Frank with Michael Fassbender, which has a very, very similar, like paper mache looking mask of a similar big headed guy similar in some other ways and there are a lot of other references that we actually couldn't get that were in episode three because that episode was particularly horror like and none of us three are really into horror so a lot of that went over my head but there was one that i caught which was that the angriest boy book is very similar to the babadook which has very similar like rhyming lines about dead, 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 and that sort of thing. Another reference that is a bit more overt is the idea that something David did at a place called Red Hook. And that is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft and other things. Red Hook is a real neighborhood in New York, and it's uh, traditionally a, a major immigrant community, a, a melting pot of sorts. And I went back and, and read The Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft and listened to a particular podcast I like that reviews it to try and find any clues and references that might relate to this. In H.P. Lovecraft's version of the story, there was a collapse of a building. And that is at least tangentially related to what might have happened with David potentially burning or destroying a city uh, or a town. That's certainly the image that that Melanie sees in the book before it slams on her hand. So we're going to talk about that more later, but basically it seems to be a loose parallel. Also, there's a notion in the story that there's some sort of strange breeding going on where some sort of being, some monster or monsters are breeding with women and I suppose you can look at that as, you know, we don't know who David's father was. And his father is sort of painted as maybe a bad guy. They're reading him this bad story. 
and there's an association with this devil with yellow eyes, and that certainly could be described as a monster. Maybe that's his father. I don't know. Just a random guess there. So there's a little bit of a connection there, but I wouldn't say that it's a strong parallel. Another thing I detected watching the show was a similarity to Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, how a lot of what we're seeing is going on inside his mind, just like it was in that movie, and how they get to kind of play around with reality and how you can like walk through a door in one room and come out into a totally another scenario or setting or location or whatever. One, it's interesting for them to be able to use that technique as a filmmaker. It's also worth noting that was an active decision that the original screenplay slash vision or whatever that was had wasn't as convoluted as what we've ended up with here, but they decided they wanted it to be a little bit more like Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind specifically. Even having David's pajamas looking exactly like Jim Carrey's in that movie. <laughs> nice. Spot on. I have those same pajamas. <laughs> in addition to the references and influences we've detected in this show coming from other shows and movies and books and whatnot, they're also making some social commentary. Just in general, the nature of the X-Men, you know, these sort of outcasts who aren't accepted by society, but have their own values and should be welcomed or whatever. That's, you know, maybe a theme that's been in Marvel that's being reflected here. Yeah, it's a, it's almost a painted as a as not just wrong to exclude people who are different, but that it's a mistake. <laughs> this can go badly for you. I don't know if that's meant to be social commentary, but it's certainly true that when you marginalize people who are powerful, <laughs> then I mean, things can go badly. I mean, it's exactly about that. It's about the X-Men need to work for good. Even if you are marginalized by society, that you still need to use your powers, as it is here, for the better and not for the destruction of society, even if they exclude you. That's a major X-Men theme, too. Like starting off with like the Holocaust and things like that, they touch on that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They even referenced all of this in the set for Summerland as Michael Wiley, that is the set and production designer, he made sure that they had a rainbow motif. Oh, that's cool. This show is obviously also dealing with huge issues of mental illness and... At this point, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the depiction so far. They want to try to fix David, it seems like, which is a common theme for people to want to fix people with mental illness, but people with mental illness don't necessarily feel that way, that that is a constructive way to be looking at them, that you that they need to be fixed. I agree. That's not a constructive way to think about normal humans that have, you know, different things going on in their mind. With David... It's an interesting quandary because he literally has the power to destroy huge amounts of people and cause massive destruction. So I think trying to fix him in this case, maybe fix isn't the right word, but to make sure he doesn't kill everybody is a pretty noble cause. And as Melanie says, we do want to use him because we're fighting a war. And it's not, this isn't, we don't just have time for morals. We got to, we got to stop these evil people. Also, sometimes fixing a person or fixing their illness Sometimes maybe you're fixing their their condition or their state in society. For example, David was doing some kind of drug, maybe illegal or whatever drug he was doing. He's also being fed a bunch of drugs by the mental institutions and psychiatrists and so on. So what it means to fix him might have a lot of different meanings. The whole concept of fixing him takes on a whole nother meaning when you realize or consider that there have been efforts by Division 3, 2, 1, whatever, these divisions, this government agency, whatever they really are, they've been actively making his delusions worse. They've been trying to convince him that he has delusions about having powers. So part of, quote-unquote, fixing him involves undoing this damage that this these people did to him. It's not just his own making. Like you said, they're feeding him drugs, they're 
telling him things that aren't true. And of course, the people at Summerland think that David's just been gaslighted and that he's been made to think that he's crazy, but in actuality, it does seem that he has a fractured mind and that he doesn't just have powers, that he does have some multiple personalities going on here. Definitely. He certainly has... I mean, we see inside his memories, and these memories conflict with each other, and there's clearly things that are blocked, which I think is evidence of trauma, something that he doesn't want to remember, and he's so powerful that even Patonomy can't get it out of him, at least not yet. Yeah, that's definitely a thing I think about a lot, especially when we've talked about how the show is ambiguous, maybe to keep us from being able to know what's really going on. Maybe he has powers, and he has delusions or whatever else. I think, you know, it's, it I think he both. definitely does. Yeah, I'd say that's got to be it. Uh, almost although I sometimes wonder if maybe he he has powers, maybe maybe doesn't have some other psychological condition, but also maybe there's another thing at work here. Maybe some other entity is interfering in his mind. Some other psychic or telepathic person is blocking memories or planting memories sinisterly yeah. or maybe even on a protective level. Who, who knows? It's I, I like to wonder about this type of stuff, and I assume we'll learn more. Noah Hawley has even spoken to this in talking about how sometimes you have a mental illness because you're born that way. Sometimes you have one because you were raised in a certain way. And if David has been raised to feel like he's crazy because he's experiencing these things... Yeah, he has a problem in that he has these this paranoia. And if Sid, for instance, has been raised to feel like she cannot touch people and people make her feel like she's antisocial because of that, then yeah, she has shades of antisocial personality disorder. And David is, you know, literally has these memories of doing things that shouldn't be possible, right? Like they shouldn't be possible. So it just feeds his own delusions because yeah. I shouldn't be able to move objects with my head. <laughs> but... I did, but that can't be possible, so I must have imagined that. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then these government guys just, yeah, yes, you <laughs> you are delusional. <laughs> and maybe it's here, it's more extreme, but I can imagine in real life someone who has schizophrenia or delusions or whatever, and they're being institutionalized or questioned or even arrested by the police and drugged up and everything else. Some things that they claim might just be crazy and people know aren't true, but some things they claim might be true. You know, you can imagine someone saying, my father abused me. Like, your father, no way he did that. And everyone tells you there's no way, but you know he did. And so you go your whole life questioning your own reality, and that's going to lead to mental disorder, you know? Yeah. That's exactly right. So we're talking about David here, so let's just get fully into talking about his character. David! David! David. <laughs> David. One thing that I love about David as a character is that I love his sense of humor. Yes. I think he's very Paul Rudd-esque, and it didn't hit me right away until someone we were watching it with said that he sounded like Paul Rudd. And I was listening, and I closed my eyes, and when he says, like, I'm insane, you idiot, that is exactly Paul Rudd's voice. And Dan Stevens normally has a British accent, so I can't help but wonder if there were any actors that he took inspiration from as an American. Yeah, they really, in the first episode, they really brought out his sense of humor more in with especially with his interactions with, with Lenny and with some of the people that are interviewing him, but... Once he's outside of clockwork, it becomes, the show takes on a bit of a different tone. He doesn't have as much opportunity to be humorous because really horrible things are happening and he's really confused. His, his sister has been taken and he's finding out all these new things about himself and he's being introduced to a new setting and he's questioning, you know, he questions Sid, is this real? You know, in the yeah. scene where bullets are flying and people are flying <laughs> and he's 
Hold on a second. <laughs> Is this real? <laughs> David. Yeah, so there's let's let's get into some of his memories. I think this is one of the most important aspects of the show and trying to figure out what's going on and dissecting what his memories, inconsistent and consistent, what they tell us about him and the plot and the world around him. Yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies in David's memories and in what he says are his memories. Like, for instance, we see a lot of shots of the suburbs despite him talking about living in the country and he said he had a house out in the country when he was eight. And we can't say for a fact how old he is when he's, you know, in the suburbs, for instance, but it sure looks like around that age, not much older. And he says that his vision started at around 10 or 11. Which in itself, we can't be sure that's accurate. But if we if we assume that these basic dates are accurate, then we compare living in the country where he says his father was an astronomer and it was about light pollution. But then we see these scenes, a lot of his memories where he's trick-or-treating and there's this, this bustling neighborhood. And there's a lot of people. And for instance, he says that his visions don't start until 10 or 11. We see him trick-or-treating at the same age he was at eight years old when he's living out in the country because we see that same actor. And he sees the angriest boy in the world there. So is that an addition to the memory after the fact? Or, I mean, it's easy to, like, if I were saying that something happened to me when I was seven, maybe it happened to me when I was eight, but I say seven. Yeah, it's hard to remember exactly what age you were when certain things happened when you were a kid. Like, I can, I don't remember what I did at age eight. I could guess roughly, you know, but I might, that might have been seven when I was seven or when I was ten, you know. I would, like, track things by what grade I was in. I would try to think reference to, you know, to times when my family moved or something. But I still, you could easily be off a year in either direction. Because of that, we don't want to get too bogged down in these minute details of, well, David said he was nine at this age, and he was actually more like 11. It's not super important, and they've even said that they have this unreliable narrator so that they don't have to get bogged down in those details. But there definitely is something fishy going on here. Yeah, I, when analyzing it, was trying to figure out, like, the stories he's telling and the memories he's having, trying to account for that. And the closest I've got is that there may have been some event right in the age where he remembers being in a country versus a city that caused him to move from the country to the city. I'm not sure about that, but that's it. one thing he might just be off about the dates. Another is maybe he was visiting. Maybe he went to the city to visit his cousin or something, but maybe something happened that caused him to move. I certainly think that it's related to this so-called Red Hook incident. It might be that he destroyed this town he was living in and we see the flaming town that melanie sees in the book world's angriest boy in the world which seems to be some sort of substitute for his memories because if he's the world's angriest boy in the world which seems pretty likely he it was whatever caused him to be so angry is what led to this triggering of his powers which potentially burned the city down and that would go a long way to explaining why he doesn't want to remember these things why he's creating false memories around it because he doesn't want to remember what would clearly be an extremely traumatic thing that if a, for a child to process that he accidentally murdered a whole lot of people i can't even imagine what that would do to your psyche especially at, at that age we do see in the opening of the whole show this sort of montage of him and his teen years getting in trouble over and over again. And you can imagine maybe when he was younger, he did that. And whether people understood or believed that he really did it, whether he understood or believed that he really did it, you can see this trouble following him around. And on some level, 
him at least wondering if he's responsible for it and that causing him to be extra rebellious or scared or whatever you know who knows who knows i mean we've even got that quote that david says that to be a monster you first got to do something monstrous and he doesn't go into that quote but i think he does feel like he's done monstrous things and that when his therapist said that to him it did not help him yeah no it really didn't and i think that the devil with yellow eyes is one of his own personality aspects and it's the one maybe that is responsible for this horrible act the monstrous act that makes him a monster in a sense and is effectively one and the same as the world's angriest boy in the world very very true and it appears most prominently when melanie's looking at the world's angriest boy in the world book and it appears behind her right after the book slams on her right after she sees the burning town she puts her hand on it and she's like huh what's this and then the book slams the yellow-eyed devil appears behind her and then you know she wakes up and uh, so i really think those things are all really tied together and i'm very curious to learn more can't wait so we see this town in that book on fire in that shot and We've seen a pyrokinetic ability when David is rescued from the Division 3 location, and we've wondered whose power that was exactly. We don't, so we still don't know whose power that was. Well, we've seen fire another time in the show in the very opening sequence when David is in the science lab. There's a fire right there, and it doesn't look like it's that he started the fire because you can start fires in science class. But that could be what it is. I think it very likely is. I mean, think about who else was in that scene. You have the people that show up to rescue him are Patonomy, Sid, and Carrie. Carrie's really the only one that might have those powers, right? And telekinetic guy with no name. And mysterious telekinetic guy, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Who got shot and hasn't been referenced since. And who... Melanie was amazed when she discovered that David had telekinetic powers, yet this dude clearly is doing that already. I think part of it was that he has multiple powers. I think that's part of why she was impressed. It could also be the being telekinetic, but I think that it was like, you have telepathy and you're telekinetic? What? And more, probably. Uh, And more, probably. (laughs) Potentially this fire stuff. Yeah, potentially. Uh, To be clear, in the comics, David does have pyrokinesis as one of his abilities whether they're taking that from the comics or not we don't know maybe he has telepathic powers telekinetic powers pyrotechnic powers and he's a really good dancer (laughs) (laughs) well we know that one (laughs) he's definitely a really good dancer (laughs) but that would really fit if he was the one that did that pyrokinesis in that scene if he rescued himself in a sense as part of himself then that just really goes to show you what we're dealing with here which is I don't know what we're dealing with here. (laughs) David. We know that he has telepathy and some sort of extrasensory power. I mean, we see, for instance, when he's laying there with Lenny, um, drugged out, that he (laughs) says, do you smell cake? And then in walks his girlfriend, Philly, with cake. And the thing that I think about here is that sometimes I think it can be hard to know the line between David's powers and David and Sid's bond just because of their body switch. And, of course, there is still the possibility that Sid is a personality or a part of David in some way. I'm starting to lean away from that a lot based on stuff we'll get into later, but it still is a possibility. And to go into this a little bit more, for instance, we have David as Sidney in the that ultimate scene in episode one, he hears Sydney as David on the other side of the wall. And in that scene, I'm reading that as he hears her when Dr. Kissinger doesn't hear her. Because of that, I wonder again, is that David's 
telepathy or is it that Sid he's in Sid's body right there he's not he doesn't have his David power so he shouldn't have an extrasensory power right there yeah that's a really good catch so I think that they do have a bond that isn't just because of David's telepathy is what I think I've settled on it could be that David has bonded with Sid and through his telepathy that's why he's seeing seeing things like the shower sequence but I think it's because of their body switch and further evidence of this is that she starts seeing things that no one else can see but him she sees things in his dreamscape that Potomy and Melanie don't see and she freaks out and she has what's apparently a vision of the devil with yellow eyes herself and pretty unambiguously having nothing to do with David. I mean, of course, there could be this link that you're talking about, which I agree with that theory, but it doesn't seem to be directly linked to David in any way, which just really hammers home this point that she's either part of him or is linked to him. Worth noting, it's not just that she sees things. Now, again, it might be a little different because it was in the memory. It was in his mind. But you remember the whole building was like shaking and moving, and they just didn't seem to acknowledge that anything out of the ordinary was happening. And then she sees the, the wall ripping over in the red light and she's freaking out and they just don't seem to notice any of it. It's not just that she saw the wall ripping. They also weren't, she was also noticing the physical movement and jolting and noise that the others weren't noticing. Yeah, so, it was really a lot going on and they were just, oh, huh? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go a little bit more into Sid and how real she is when we get to her a little bit after this. But first, let's finish wrapping up what the other abilities that David has been shown to have are. One again that we mentioned is telekinesis, and as we brought up, we see this telekinetic guy, we don't see him again, so in terms of wondering who's a personality and who's not, that's very suspect. But we've also seen memory modification here. We've seen this a bunch of times, actually, and photonomy is a memory artist, so it even makes me a little suspicious of that, as they all just seem so much of a part of what David's abilities are. And this is the last one, and it really makes me suspicious. I still think I'm on board with most of everything being real. But I am really suspicious when I think of things like this, that one of his abilities could easily be projection of some sort, which is exactly what Carrie and Carrie have. That Carrie projects the other Carrie into reality, or that he can suck her into himself, which is just so spot on with David. It's doing a really good job of giving us evidence for multiple theories. And these theories often contradict each other. So it's, well, we're still kind of lost, but it's a great ride so far. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm just going to quit watching it now. (laughs) (laughs) So whether Sid is real, is part of his personality, or just has a bond with him now, I think that the scenes with her and David and her in general have this huge obvious metaphor of connection and sharing experience in their different forms of anxiety. As they even say, this is a romance of the mind. And I think they show that really just beautifully. I think it's so well done. I love their relationship. And I was surprised that I was so invested into it, but I really don't want anything shady to be up with Sid and David. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. There's already a lot of misdirection in in the show, and I think it's done well, but I don't want them to go so far with the misdirection that you never get answers or that we are never, that we're always confused. I'd like some resolution at some point. (laughs) I'll say that one quote that has made me feel a lot better about the idea that Sid at least is real is this, and this is a quote from Noah Hawley. He said, I think the love story of it is very grounding when you have a character that doesn't know what's real and what's not real and the audience is on that journey with him. If you give them something positive to root for, they'll make you a trade. 
They'll say, as long as this girl is real and this love is real, we'll go with you wherever you want to go. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's encouraging. I think it's encouraging. But again, it gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the episode is what is reality? Sid can be real and be a, a and be a construct and a personality of David's, especially if he's able to project her into a reality. She is still effectively real. So I still have doubt. That's that's a good point. If he can make people like not just create them in his mind, but literally project them into reality. Boy, does that open up a lot of possibilities. <laughs> this is maybe a bit of an abstract thought, but in a certain way, it's something that we all do. Most of us out here have had some relationship in our past that went sour. And a lot of times, part of why that happens is because you had this idea in your mind who this person was, and it wasn't who they really, quote unquote, really were, you know? And when a a breakup or fallout or whatever happens, a lot of times you're heartbroken and struggle to get over it because you are struggling to get over this idea in your mind of who that person was, even though it's not reality. And sometimes we never really reconcile that, you know? And... Something that I just bring this up because it's a way that I don't know how to say this, but Sid could be real to David, even though she's not real in like the physical universe. But it doesn't change the fact that he really loves her. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because of all this, we don't want to get again too bogged down in whether Sid is real or not, because it might not be all that important. But we do like to go into some of the evidence for and against it. And one most one of the most glaring pieces was the fact that. Her feet aren't visible when she enters David's room in episode one. Yeah, that was an odd shot. It seemed like they wanted to make sure that we noticed that. We see the shot from underneath the bed. The door opens. And as the door is closing, the camera pans up and she's there. And so maybe Sid also has superpowers like invisible feet. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. That's a really useful power. Imagine... At public restrooms, you know, no, whatever. <laughs> you can make sure people accidentally walk in on you. Exactly. And that's so useful because... Uh. David? I do wonder things like, is Sid potentially in David's memory or mind only some of the time? Which could really mislead us. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that struck me first about the character of Sid and kind of rubbed me the wrong way, although I am hoping that they'll really delve into her character, is it's kind of a cliche and a trope. <laughs> it's the trope of the untouchable woman. Super old trope. Yeah, it's been around for yeah. since I mean, mythology, ancient mythology. Yeah, I mean, just think about it for a second. Before I say anything, I'm sure you can think of at least one yeah, off the top of your rogue head. Rogue is super it's obvious. Exactly, yeah. rogue. But there's also characters like Alicia from the amazing show Misfits or countless, countless villains that have had things like the kiss of death or even Medusa, which is the maybe, gaze of death. Yeah, the gaze <laughs> of death. And so far they've started to get into that a little bit more. They definitely have treated it with more depth than I think a lot of things have. So I'm, I have high hopes for it, but I definitely am on edge that she will just continue being this idealized woman that David can't touch. But I, I think that there's a very small chance that it'll turn out that way. I think that Noah Hawley won't disappoint here. Yeah, that would be an interesting way to go with it. I agree with you that that would be a little disappointing, but given that if she's not real... Then that would be almost be okay because it's like, well, this is kind of, if she's just an idealized fantasy, then it makes sense to her for her to have these idealized fantastical characteristics because she's an invention in some guy's mind. And I really thought one of the best moments of the show so far was her poignant explanation of what her body means to her because 
no matter who I've been, you know, an old woman, I've been a Chinese person, blah, blah, blah. And she's always her wherever she goes. And that was a really neat way of her, t- you know, she talks about the soul. She says, I have proof, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I-, I thought that was really well done. I thought it was really well done too. And again, and metaphor for people in general who often feel that they don't have ownership over their own body, women in particular, feel like it's not my body if anyone can just come and go, which is, which is done really well, really subtly, I think. I definitely think they've also, though, alluded to a deeper story for Sid here. We see things like her story about her mother, who was incredibly smart and wrote papers, which is very interesting. We hear that she says, we all did things, so I can't help but wonder what Sid did that she has some regret for. And, of course, Sid just has also a good sense of humor, just like David. She's just a very likable character. Definitely, yeah. That's it. Her background is really interesting. That whole stuff with her mother was, sounds like a really formidable person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely mm. with her salons. <laughs> the salon, yes, her many and all the, all the suitors she had, apparently. All the heads she took. <laughs> <laughs> that's formidable. Maybe that's what she did. <laughs> Another thing that is almost tropey to me, but I think was deconstructed really well, was the idea of David wanting to protect Sydney. He wants to protect her from his mind. And there's been countless stories of a man wanting to protect a woman from something, of not thinking that she can handle it. But Sid herself, we see in that episode, she has that those thoughts about how she'll protect him. And we see the converse of that. They both want to protect each other. And I think that's very important to making it not seem like a cliche. Yeah, she just needs to not let him touch her <laughs> so he, she doesn't grab his powers again. <laughs> that, as long as they avoid that part, they'll be all right. <laughs> Speaking of, was anyone else really bothered by the fact that Sid should have been told immediately that her powers didn't work in someone's memory? Yeah, that, that might have been a small plot hole. Like, yeah. you know someone has this power that has kept them from touching people their entire life, and they're here with their boyfriend, and you don't tell them, hey, you guys could just go into a safe memory and, you know, hook up or hug each other or anything. And, and of course, like you said, pointed out before, she's had memory work done, too. So she's been, she should have been through this already. She should know that her powers don't work. Yeah, it does seem like they wanted to... Let the audience know it was okay for them to touch in the the memory sequence. But we know that she's already gone through this. And so it seems like she should have already been told. Maybe, I'm, I'm hesitant to pass judgment because maybe there's just something we don't understand that's yet to come, will be explained, whatever, whatever. But it seems to me like it would have been a simple fix if instead of Melanie telling her, hey, it's okay to touch him, if Sid... It seems like Sid should have already known this and she should have asked for clarification. That way the audience still gets this explanation, but it's not this uh, conflict of what it seems like should be. If Sid had said, it's okay for me to touch him right here, right? And Melanie says, yes, in memories, your powers don't work. Then it lets the audience know, but it doesn't create this, what seems like an error in continuity. Exactly. It would have been very easy to change it slightly, but it is very exciting to know that they can touch each other in memories and that their powers don't work in these memories. And it also makes you think about David's memories. If he went into someone else's memories, could he get a break from his own torment by the devil with the yellow eyes? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Maybe not because he's in her memories too, apparently now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He needs to bond with someone else who has yeah. Go to someone else's memory. Someone with a nice, happy, happy memory. David. So let's move on to a character that is definitely a personality some of the time, Lenny Busker, played by Aubrey Plaza. 
Yeah, this is there's not as much ambiguity with her. She's almost certainly a figment of his mind, but probably was a real person before. But there is some question of when she became a personality or even if she became a personality at Clockworks when she was killed, she could still be a personality in his false memories. Definitely, because it doesn't really make sense that they would have been friends outside in the outside world doing drugs together, doing their thing. And then somehow allowed to be together in this mental hospital. That's not how that works. That's, I mean, that's a common TV thing where two people go to jail and they end up being able to hang out together. Like they're in the same cell. I mean, that's really common, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is tied into the uncertainty of everything we're seeing. Exactly. And we even see when David leaves his therapist's office, we see him eating Twizzlers, which is the candy associated with Lenny in the hospital. Now, whatever might have happened in a real world with people who end up being institutionalized might be different here. They might want to keep David with her for some reason. You know, David might be getting treated differently than what would be normal by Division Three or whatever powers it be. It certainly is possible, especially as we don't know how much Division Three is involved at Clockworks Hospital, if at all. And if they are, everything's opened up to conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that makes me awfully suspicious of Lenny in the flashbacks is that David and Lenny do this vapor together. And I wonder personally if the vapor just calms down the voices or if it actually makes David more susceptible to the devil with the yellow eyes. And I think there are symbols that that make you think that this is the case, especially because when you first see Lenny in his flashback, she's in front of a man with these bright, light eyes. And then when you see them again, she's in front of this thing with these eyes. It could be like speaking to his different personality aspects that are in his head. And as he inhales this stuff, it shifts him from one personality to another. And yeah. it could be showing, okay, now he's he's projecting Lenny, but now he's projecting the devil with yellow eyes. Maybe later he's projecting somebody else. It just depends on the outside in circumstances, whatever is influencing him and his own state of mind. Yeah, I mean, we obviously see Lenny turn into the devil with yellow eyes, so you can't help but have this association. Exactly, yeah. At one point, I had supposed that the devil with the yellow eyes represented his addiction. But we see that we see that character in his youth. He's seen the devil with yellow eyes before he ever would have... Suppose, assume, before he ever would have done drugs when he was a little kid. <laughs> so I... Well, it's possible he was given treatment, you know, not doing drugs, but given medication. Ah, that's possible too, know? yeah. Lenny, whether real or not, also might be a symbol of his addiction. Yeah, exactly. She can, she can be both. And she definitely is not real at the current timeline. We see specifically when he's had, when he has his brain being monitored, that his brain is going crazy, but they are not seeing what he's seeing. So there definitely is that element there. And as for the flashbacks, there's little things like when he's robbing Dr. Poole, uh, his therapist, he hears Lenny's voice in his head. This could be because Lenny told him to do this, and now it's just reverberating around his head as his inspiration. It could be because Lenny's just outside and he can read minds, which he can. Or it could be because she was a personality at the time. Yeah, it's, it makes sense. I like the association with her and the, the drug stuff because that is clearly who he did drugs with, whether she was real or not. And mm -hmm. breaking into the therapist's office was about getting access to more drugs. So yeah. either way, Lenny's involvement, whether as a voice or whether a real person, it just makes a lot of sense. There's one clue that we also have to go off of is that Lenny has these henna hand tattoos. 
And they made a point to make sure that she has them in some scenes and doesn't have them in others. And so I think the scenes that she has them are when she's real. So the flashbacks, the hospital, but not when she's a personality. By the way, I read that that was Aubrey Plaza's idea to have those tattoos. Yes. And that makes me a little more suspicious of the intent behind them. You know, it, it made there I'm not sure, but I, I don't know how much it was just she decided to do it that day or not another day. It definitely was not that because she specifically has them in Clockworks and as a flashback and does not have them when she is a personality and okay. a figment of his imagination. Like, it is definitely pointed. That said... The devil with the yellow eyes, David's mind, can be tricky. They, yeah, yeah. We can't hmm. say that that is proof. But to me, it makes me think that Lenny became a personality when she was killed at Clockworks. End of story. But that she's also a symbol of a lot of things. But it could also be the devil being tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny also has some of the all-time best lines in the whole show. And we could talk for ages about them. But I figured we should highlight a couple of our favorites. She's favorite. clearly the she's clearly the comic relief. Yeah, definitely, definitely. My <laughs> but more than that, but you know, not just the comic relief. Yeah, yeah, that's, she has more than that. My favorite is Unhand the Reptile Space Captain. <laughs> <laughs> but she also has some other great ones. I mean, little tiny lines like "Got his clampons on." <laughs> she's nice. really teasing him about the. Did you feel your? You know, <laughs> did you feel yourself up when you were her? <laughs> nice like, hindquarters. Yeah, yeah. We at CNN really like her chances. That's right. It's really just. It's really good, and we're going to talk about this in the meta elements a little bit more, but I just want to mention here that this character was male originally, and I think it comes through in her lines, but Aubrey Plaza was like, I will take the role if you keep the lines the same. Do and not the, change the character. And the name is Lenny. That's yeah. not a girl's name. Exactly. So it, it, I just, it's such a, such a great character. I really like her a lot. Another character that I like a lot that we haven't seen a lot of is Amy. Lenny herself turns into Amy and has clearly has these shape-shifting abilities as a personality. And Amy herself is a character we haven't seen a whole lot of and we don't know a ton of what she thinks about things. Like if David had killed a parent, for instance, or had done something truly monstrous, Amy should know about that. And we don't see her knowing about anything really extreme. We see Division 3 questioning her and they don't bring up any... Absolutely monstrous things. They do bring up the issue of his, you know, they say, you knew he had these powers. They kind of like try to guilt her. And she's like, I, I thought he was schizophrenic. And so maybe she's sort of blocked some of these things out too. I, I like, I agree that she would know if, you know, like their parents died and, be, and he was involved. But maybe she's kind of in the dark about some of the details too. Another thought, by the way, I don't know if this is where they're going with it or if it's true, but she might also have some kind of psychological issue. I I can also maybe whether it's you know genetic from birth or something put on her by her seeing these things that her brother did and just not being able to reconcile with the reality has just gained the ability you know to like block her memories you know which might be called something that it might be something that someone wants to fix you know someone wanting yeah. to block memories or block reality out just her way to deal with the fact that her brother did something terrible Maybe she generally doesn't know, but those guys interrogating her seem to be implying that you know, you know that he shouldn't be locked up in here because he has schizophrenic issues. It's because he's dangerous to himself. Help us out because we're worried about him and what he might do. But I'm she guessing, held her ground. She didn't give in. So I'm guessing she didn't. She herself doesn't have any like powers. But it's interesting to consider that possibility, considering their father's identity has been concealed. They're going to great lengths to not let us know who this person is. And if he, you know, has this genetics, he may have passed them on to both of them. There's a chance they have different fathers? 
I agree. I was going to say the same thing. They may be half uh, half siblings. That yeah, I, an interesting twist. Yeah, I wonder if David had a stepfather, which character was his real father even. Yeah. I mean, we see this man with the shadowed face and... Reading we, him this awful story to yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, reading this awful story to him. We also see that they don't show his mother's face very often, except for when Melanie sees both of them. Mm. It could help to explain why what seems to be presented as a dark father character. You know, maybe it's just incomplete or manipulated, but it might just be a straight-up villain. But it might not be his real dad. It's hard if we know his dad is Professor X, and Professor X is this terrible person. So maybe there was some sort of stepfather or foster father or some other person that had a father role that was terrible in some way. Or maybe Professor X is actually a bad guy or a bad dad or who knows. <laughs> and it's interesting, he, that's who he thinks of first when thinking of love, you know, not Sid. Not Sid. Another thing... Amy, not the father to be clear. <laughs> he thought <laughs> right, of Amy. Right, right, yeah. right. His sister, not his father. Another thing about his sister is, honestly, when we see this flashback, she has these pigtails and I just can't help but think of Sid. Which, you know, if this is his idealistic memory of his childhood and his beloved sister and her pigtails and... If he were to create Sid, she might have pigtails on when he first meets her. Hmm. That would explain why he can't touch her. Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch your sister, dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gross. Tied up with these memories of his sister is the memories of, of their dog. The dog is mm-hmm. really present in a lot of these memories in a very curious Way a lot of curious things about this that I, I don't have a lot of answers personally. I don't even have a lot of guesses, but it's hard to miss that the dog is all pops up a lot, and we see dogs in a lot of other places too. They're they're popping up all over the show in various places. There's carvings of dogs. There's dog imagery. There's it's some of it's really subtle. You got to like slow down the the show and and catch it. So let's go through it. Cool. First of all, the creepiest one to me is the fact that on the hospital roof on clockworks there is a giant statue of a dog just like the dog statuette that the eye gives to david yeah speaking of the eye now that is a creepy dude (laughs) and his story has got to be interesting because he's got powers but he's working for this government agency that is uh, kind of hunting down all these people with powers he's like uh i guess he's kind of an x-men uncle tom type figure Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, he certainly has the ability to see David, which people without powers in the room don't seem to be able to. And he has this milky eye, which implies that that has something to do with his power, that he can see through things. And we have this dog theme that does seem to be related to him. We'll see. He was carving something else in episode three during Amy's interrogation. And I'm very curious if it's another dog, because it would say a lot if it is another dog. And of course, we also see him leading packs of dogs, through when looking for David and we see this dog in the cage with this kind of red light and we're going to talk more later about the significance of the potential significance of red light in the show there was even a dog in the memory that Sid entered when David was trying to recall the day when he's being interrogated he was trying to recall the day that he got captured or whatever and we saw autonomy and Carrie following him and uh, you know, he was making that phone call. And in that scene, there's a man walking a dog across the street. And the dog like stops and turns and then continues again. But it was right in the midst of this, I don't know, suspenseful sequence that I feel like maybe was random. But why did they put that there for a reason? There's well, too much. There's no way they just I mean, randomly put that dog. I specifically picks him up in a van afterwards. Yeah, yeah So exactly. I think that's so, pretty clear, honestly. Yeah. And we see David staring at this dog in episode mm. two. But... As much as I think that the theory that 
eye is able to see through dogs or has a dog related power is really strong I think it's most likely there's also a kind of cool theory is that we see a lot of dog imagery about David's childhood in particular like we see that David's dog has this really weird red tennis ball that was odd in the opener of episode three which it's really odd you don't see red tennis balls and red is a color specifically associated with some dark things here but the idea is that what if David if David killed his dog on accident Maybe part would, of the Red Hook incident. He, would, would he absorb a dog's personality? Would mm. he be able to, like, hear dog thoughts ever? Like, it is a theory that's out there. I don't think it's the most likely one, but I think it's kind of funny to think about. If we see him panting later, <laughs> <laughs> he starts shaking his butt, you know, like, you know, is something, that a tail wagging there? <laughs> something I didn't think of till just now, but a watchdog. Yeah, yeah. The, this dog uh, theme and the eyes seem to be connected. And clockworks, obviously. It's all tied together. Yeah, yeah. watch, dog, clock, watch. Yeah. yeah, it's all very tied together, I think. So the eye works for this mysterious Division Three. We have this white-haired guy who seems to be sort of... Maybe he's in charge. We have the interrogator guy who's dead. You yeah. noticed a great little meta joke there. Oh, that he's literally gaslighting David and then <laughs> he gets hit with the gas? David <laughs> yeah, does. that's hilarious. <laughs> So that character's gone, but there's clearly Division Three is still very important and major, and the Eye and this white-haired guy, and there's apparently a Division One, which means there's probably a Division Two, yeah. and there's some sort of connection between all these characters and Melanie. Yeah, there is some sort of connection, and we hear Melanie talk about Walter and get the impression that Walter is the Eye, but it isn't actually super clear. Walter could be someone that we haven't actually seen yet, and the Eye is one of his men. Just Technically speaking, like I wonder, for instance, Brubaker, that is the white-haired guy that seems more in charge. It doesn't seem like he has a power because he doesn't see David there. So I don't think he has the power. But I wonder why he has such power in general. Yeah, I do too. There should be a lot more about him at some point. Melanie seems to have power. Yeah. Though she's in charge, even though she doesn't have a superpower. So yeah. just uh, someone's leadership qualities or whatever. You you're, know. you're exactly right that, that that is the case, that she specifically does not have a power that Noah Hawley has said that she just doesn't, she doesn't have one. But she got in bed, you know, with her husband Oliver. <laughs> but <laughs> no, she got in bed with Oliver and Carrie and them, and they started Summerland years and years ago. One thing I just want to point out real quick as well before we move on to Melanie, actually, is about the Division Three things. One, those pink hats are very <laughs> funny. Yeah. Which I just wanted to mention the pink hats, and I just want to say the word liquium. <laughs> liquium. Just real quick. <laughs> good, good old comic book materials. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but back to Melanie. She's portrayed in a light that maybe we shouldn't trust her necessarily, but she's also portrayed in a very sad light in the most recent episode. So I, I think I do trust her, ultimately. I do, too. Uh, the, the scene where she listens to her husband's voice from the coffee machine and pours her coffee away and yeah. then listens to the same story again. She says, I, no, I don't believe I've heard that story. Yeah. That was very sad and meaningful. It is something that bothers me a little bit. It seems like David was rescued from the bad guys, and now he's working with the good guys. But I just have to remind myself that the good guys... They just killed a bunch of people to rescue yeah. David. Like, all those guards were just incinerated. And maybe each one of those guards was an evil murderer. But maybe they were just, like, <laughs> some guy with a daughter and a <laughs> wife that's trying to earn money. He's just a hired gun. He's just doing his work. You know, like, at, you know, the joke that they make in Clerks about how everyone in the Death Star wasn't an evil stormtrooper. Some of them were just construction workers, just yeah. got hired for a job. And 
And these quote-unquote good guys just killed everyone. Yeah. No trial, no questions, no chance for redemption. Just killed them all to get David out of there. So I don't I have can't... a problem with that personally because this is war. She says this is war and, you know, yeah. collateral yeah. damage is a part of war. You, you can't... But you still can say that they're not just... Tr- they're not straight good. Yeah. They're yeah. working for what... Do- I mean, I do think they do, apparently, they're working... I, I do think even that Star Wars argument, there's, there is some merit to saying, hey, these people, yeah, they're just independent contractors, but they're working... They're literally building an instrument of enslavement and terror. Like, true, true. Like, are you really good guys if yeah. you're helping with that? <laughs> okay, maybe those guards there, they were like, oh, well, we're holding this guy in a pool that could sh- kill him and shock him at any moment, but it's for the greater good. Like, maybe those guys were thinking that, that these mutants are yeah. dangerous, and they're not wrong. They That's the thing, is why I think your point is is accurate is that these people aren't just evil they're not just trying to suppress people because they're different they're trying to suppress them because they can just hurt a lot of people david could kill everyone i mean yeah, he blew yeah. up a town probably right or yeah. something something you he know? did something <laughs> fandomedia.reviews so it's yeah it's really interesting this is the kind of thing that i really like about the show is unlike a lot of other superhero type genre elements it's got this there's this constant moral ambiguity that's just made even more confusing by not being entirely sure if what we're seeing is what we're really seeing so that's just a really i mean it's mind-bending for sure i mean this plays into the crane story that melanie's husband oliver tells the beginning of episode three and we won't go into the whole story but essentially the woman was a crane all along and so they lifted the veil and she flew away. And the idea that we're going to lift the veil and see what something is all along, I think, is echoed throughout the show. I love that Oliver is Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. His voice, once you hear it, if you know that voice and you didn't catch it, if you hear it again, you will not miss it. Yeah. It's, it's like once you realize it's Jermaine Clement, you're like, oh, wow, that is Jermaine Clement. <laughs> <laughs> I really love, by the way, in the various promos for the show, which you can watch. They're all on the FX site and FX YouTube page. They have all these videos that are narrated by Mm. him. Like, what is love? Some people say it, you know, just going into it, and it's just so funny, which is, I was excited to see him in the show, and I was surprised to see him in a coffee machine, <laughs> but I'm excited to see more of him. You you have to know that he's not not going to show up when Melanie specifically doesn't say that he's died and that she's been alone for 20 years since he disappeared. You think he'll sing a song? <laughs> it's, it's probably too much for us to hope that the coffee machine says, it's business time. <laughs> uh, David. But get back to this crane story that he tells, I just wanted to pose the question to you all. Was that a crane that we see silhouetted in the background of David's dream in episode one when he's at Clockworks? He's having this bad dream and it's right before he freaks out and the bed raises up in the air and then falls on the ground. And we see this silhouette in the backdrop. I didn't see a crane. I thought it was like, I don't know, a woman doing gymnastics, which is really weird. Some construction work. I don't know what I thought it was, but it does look a lot like a crane, actually. Like, I think it might be meant to look like a lot of things. I think it could be a crane, but like you say, it's far too ambiguous. I don't think... I think if they wanted it to be a crane, I think they might have made it a little clearer. But regardless, I don't know what it could be if it's not a crane. I I don't have a strong guess. So, if you think it looks like something in particular, feel free to let us know. Yeah, in general, feel free to send us any comments you have on Legion. It's a great, mysterious show. There's a lot of mysteries, a lot of theories that are viable at this point especially so early in the show so if you guys want to get involved comment on the episode at fandomedia.reviews let us know what you think and maybe we'll read your question aloud next time let's move on to patonomy now i think we've covered division three and melanie and all that sufficiently yes the memory man with the milk (laughs) yeah 
I am really excited to see more of Patonomy. I'm excited to see more of the drawbacks of his power. There's been a lot of talk from Noah Hawley and the actor in different interviews about that his power has drawbacks, that he remembers everything, even the most awful things. And so I think we're going to delve into that, but I am definitely excited to see that. That's something I like seeing in, about superpowers in general, is I like seeing the flaws that come with it. And this is one that has a huge flaw. Yeah, and we see that it has limitations, that David is, is more powerful than him, even in his own power in True. some ways. I also like his delivery. He's kind of deadpan, you know, suddenly, light. Tell me about that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah that was really good. It's very good. And just that scene in general of David waking up to Patami was so weird with the, the milk and the goat. The goat, and the, yeah. That and was the really... angles that they were filming it at. It was all just really just perfectly surreal. A, a piece of evidence that might indicate that he's real. Because as we've said, almost any of these characters might be projections or delusions or something. Patonomy seems to have two names, though. He's Patonomy might be a nickname. Melanie calls him Paul when they leave the David's memory, and I was like, is, "What is that? What she said? Is there some kind of homonym for Paul that I'm not thinking of? Is Paul can't possibly be short for Patonomy?" I wrote it down in our notes. I was like, oh, "I should ask Aziz and Sean if that's what they heard and double check this." And Aziz was like, "Let me look this up," and he looked up, you know, Patonomy real name or something like that, and found an interview. Where he talks about this. Yeah, it says, he says that we were on set one day and Melanie called me this other name. And I was like, wait, what? I, I think I went to the script supervisor and was like, hey, is this an accident? And then I think they reached out to Noah. And he was like, no, that's his other name. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I feel like he should have known that already, but everyone goes with their own strategies. I guess it got lost in the shuffle, maybe, you know. I also read that they held back a lot of information from Dan Stevens because they wanted him to go through a certain amount of confusion that his character is also going through. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Dan Stevens himself is like, I think I got it. I think Summerland is fake. And <laughs> and Noah Hawley's like, that's what that's what David thinks right yeah. now. But no, it's real. Or any number of variations on that. Like, I do wonder if Dan Stevens ever thought he, he nailed it there. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. That's certainly a thing that a lot of directors have done over the years is is, is lie to the actors that they're dealing with to get a real, <laughs> more genuine reaction out of them. Yeah. For better or worse, sometimes they take it to crazy extremes. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not working with that director again. <laughs> <laughs> they literally, like, have things jumping out to scare them. Like, there's tons of horror directors who have done stuff like that. Yeah. He poured real acid on my face. <laughs> <laughs> again. Again. Uh, David... A couple little details about Tommy that I think are worth David. highlighting. One is that when David, David goes to his sisters on Halloween, the kids say, what are you supposed to be? I'm kind of a snotty voice, honestly, um, to him. And when Patonomy leaves David's memory after seeing all this stuff, Patonomy says, what are you? Also yeah. kind of rudely. Yeah, he's really just kind of exasperated and, yeah. and like overwhelmed maybe. But it, we do wonder, what is he? Does he <laughs> have these multiple personalities all with multiple powers? And Which is just, most of these people, I mean, they just have one power. It's crazy to think that he has dozens or who knows what. <laughs> and they're so powerful powers. Uh, powerful powers. <laughs> And, and, and interesting, we learn a little bit more about how Patonomy's power works when Melanie says that she doesn't 
want to sedate David, but thinks it's necessary. And Patonomy looks at Carrie like disgustedly, like he's can you like, believe this? What? Like he's exasperated. He's like, I yeah. can't believe we're doing this. And so you see that, which indicates that they've done this before, and it it is dangerous. They know that this is dangerous. It's not like, oh, okay, well maybe this will work. No, he had a negative, very negative reaction to this. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it speaks a lot to Patonomy and Carrie's relationships and the power structure here in Summerland as well. Yeah, he didn't argue. He was exasperated, looked at Carrie, they shed that look, but he didn't try to say no. Yeah, and they yeah. just, Melanie, was her word is was carried. So, carried. Speaking yeah. of Carrie, we have Carrie and Carrie, that is C-A-R-Y and K-E-R-R-Y, Loudermilk, which is also a really weird last name. <laughs> and I think this joke is so dumb, but I still love it. It still cracks me up. The joke goes further than just a joke because it seems to be male carries power potentially but it could be more complicated than that like i it seems like maybe male carry just projects this female version that is kick-ass and can do things but it could be something different like they someone else used the power and now they're combined into one person like there's there's more that it could be and it could be that carry was a real person female carry was a real person at some point we just don't know and it may be that they're an example of multiple powers. Yeah. Uh, but it may be, like you said, it might not be multiple powers with two people kind of combined and they each have a power, but... It's possible that the pyrokinetic power was female Carrie because yeah. she's the unknown mutant at Division 3. Yeah, at this point we haven't really seen what she can do. We just have guesses. We just know she fights and that she is projected out of Carrie in some way. And so she could have a power of her own. One thing that I think argues against them someone else combining them like that being an artificial thing is that how would he develop the power to reseparate if and what yeah. it was his original power if, yeah. this, if he is this one so i think that something else is going on yeah, i think something else is going on but it is it is curious if is that his only power i mean he certainly seems super smart he has yeah. like this wacky technology which is a great detail uh, it helps to the timelessness of it that we see some really advanced technology like voice technology and voice recognition and stuff like that. But we also see like these weird old looking boxes. Yeah. And it was odd that, that the, you know, he started to freak out inside the machine there. It wasn't an MRI machine, but it's very similar to yeah. an MRI machine. And uh, he thought the devil with eyes was there. <laughs> M stands for mutant resonance imaging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We also have some examples of Carrie and Carrie interacting with Sydney. Specifically, female Carrie talks to Sydney and says that male Carrie is talking to her. And male Carrie tells Sydney not to go into the room while David is malfunctioning. So just more evidence for Sid being real or at least a real projection. Yeah, or, or evidence for or evidence for them all not being real. Yeah, <laughs> that is kind of where it goes for me is that at this point, they're all so tied together that it's all or nothing. I yeah. agree. Yeah, you're right. They're, they've all had conversations with each other, without David around, with, you know, individual. Every person has basically spoken to every other person. Except for one, the super telekinetic guy in the rescue scene. <laughs> yeah, still don't know what he the deal is. He hasn't interacted with anyone else. And so there's been a lot of other just people wandering around that facility that we true. haven't gotten to know. We assume that there's a lot of different powers in play there, but they could all be fake. <laughs> <laughs> Two people that seem to be 100% real are David's therapists, that is Dr. Kissinger and Dr. Poole. Although, at the mental institution, they were denying the existence of Dr. Kissinger, so <laughs> maybe he's not real. They were denying the existence of David and true. of Sid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were just doing a, a massive cover-up. Although, I do wonder, again, 
how much Kissinger might have gotten involved with Division Three. Like if they're de- if they're denying his existence, maybe Division Three also picked up Kissinger yeah. and has access to him in some way. Like we might see him again, for instance. One person that we saw in an unreal form was Doctor Poole in that flashing hologram. Of course, we we when David is robbing him, we see his memory of this experience that he had. Tonomy seems to also see it too, which I think is worth noting. Yeah, and he so he's eating the tape of the of the mm-hmm. recording, which is really evocative image. And I wonder, it's tape of him, his own conversations mm-hmm. with his therapist, which is kind of interesting. But if it weren't for that, I would almost think that this is some indication that he's like taking in other people's memories, you know, mm-hmm. and like he's absorbing other people. But this is his psychological sessions that he's eating the tapes. Yeah, of. I think it's definitely an example of that he. Uh, emblem of him destroying the evidence of his own memories that he's faked all of these memories and so he's eating the tapes uh and of course it's double with the yellow eyes it's doing the suppression that we see yeah. even he suppresses it by closing the book on melanie's hand there so it just shows that the devil is this personification of his fears and his unwillingness to deal with these issues brings us all back to the idea that this is some big trauma that he's kind of concealing or building walls around within his own head Another weird thing about that scene that I didn't catch the first time around, but as David's eating that tape, he has blood on his hands. Yes. And they show us an image of Dr. Poole with blood on his face. Yeah, that's in episode two, by the way, that we see the shot of Dr. Poole. And it's just like a, a weird shot, like on his, like his eyes and his face, and it's very odd. And then again, we see this played out in episode three with no explanation. And when David is, e- is eating the tapes... Right there, there's no blood on his hands in his memory that Potonomy and Melanie and them are seeing. So definitely that was a fake memory, for instance. Like that that memory of him robbing Dr. Poole, I think, had to be fake in some way. And that I think that he did something awful to Dr. Poole there. Maybe, maybe not there. Maybe but. Dr. Poole showed up at the office and caught him in the act. Something like yeah, that, maybe knows. I don't know, but I, I I have to think that he 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 hurt him, killed him. The blood on yeah, the the imagery with the flashing it was like a strobe light almost with with the blood on his face. That's not a good sign for Doctor Poole. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we, we when we first see that in episode one, we see the devil with the yellow eyes written over it, even which shows that this is David when he's you know as we mentioned doing these things to suppress things and doing these things to hurt people. David is trying to contain this evil part of himself, a psychiatrist drawing it out of him might have these terrible consequences. And yeah. you're like, no, don't yeah. go there. And I was like, don't bring this back out of me. It's not just a horrible memory. I, it be, makes me into this horrible killer, this monster maybe. I don't know, something along those lines. So on this note, let's get into the devil with yellow eyes, one of the most intriguing subject matters in the whole show yeah the horror elements are really strong with this especially the most recent episode which technically would be episode three it feels like the fourth episode because the first episode was was double length but that was like a horror episode the first episode was kind of set up it had a lot of comedy it had a lot of you know introductions and it had a lot of you know a lot of dry humor and then there was by episode episode three was really so much of it was focused on david's memories there was a lot of horror elements it was really creepy you had the halloween memories you had a lot of the devil with yellow eyes you had that big headed angriest boy in the world (laughs) angriest boy in the world which was really scary like that got me good i I really like that yeah i liked it too and i think it's worth noting here that david 
doesn't seem to remember seeing the devil with yellow eyes. He just remembers fear. That's how he describes it as fear. At first we think he's lying. that He's just not admitting what he's seeing. But then it's like, it just keeps happening. It's like, maybe he's really not able to process this or describe it in, in physical, visual terms. Yeah. Which I thought, that was only in episode three that we heard him saying that. And it changed my perception of all the David scenes with the devil. Something I try to pay attention to in shows is from what perspective are we getting things? And in this show, for the most part, we're getting it from David's perspective, which isn't reliable. But a lot of times we do get scenes that aren't things that David is or could see, I suppose. Like maybe telepathic. <laughs> With his powers. It, but, like, yeah. Yeah. but it doesn't <laughs> seem to be like he's aware of it. You know, it doesn't, it seems to be presenting, it seems as though the show is presenting certain stuff to us, like, not stuff that David is seeing like when eyes go into the forest with the dog. Or when Melanie is hearing the story from her husband, the coffee machine. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Good. So Perfect. Yeah. with that in mind, could it be that we are seeing something like the devil with the yellow eyes that David isn't exactly seeing? Does that make sense? We are being shown something, even though in this moment, in this scene, we're sort of seeing things through David's eyes, which might be skewed. But maybe additionally, we're seeing a bit of reality that David's not seeing. I think it's Ooh. that we're able to remember what we're seeing. I think that David sees the devil looking like that. And I think he just it blocks it out and doesn't rem- like instantly forgets it. It's part of that trauma that he's trying to forget. Especially if, if, we're, if the theory that it, the devil with the yellow eyes is either part of his psyche, especially the part that's associated or responsible for the incident at Red Hook, if he's blocking that memory out... That would explain why he can't see this thing that he's blocking out. Of course, Sid herself, she brings up that she saw something. But she does not say what she saw or get into details. And it doesn't seem like... It seems like as soon as she tries to put it into words, it seems like she isn't able to. Yeah, yeah. Which could be part of the devil's power, perhaps. Whoa. That's uh, what's that's a reference to um, to uh, the usual suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever devil ever pulled was convincing everyone that he didn't exist. Well, yeah. I could be exactly what's going on <laughs> here. Honestly, that is actually really spot on. I, I, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> One thing the devil seems to do is change not only his size but his clothes. He has some sort of wardrobe somewhere where he's changing it up. <laughs> but sometimes he's in like the hospital gown, like when we first see him in episode one. And I mean, David was in a hospital, so it, it makes sense. Other times. And to be fair, if he's somewhat symbolic of his father in some way, his father apparently died last year and maybe was related to that uh, as an aside. But other times the devil is wearing these weird black tattered clothes that look like they got burned almost or just damaged in some way. And other times he's wearing a straight up suit. The burns, of course, again, makes me think of him setting everyone on fire at Red Hook yeah. or something like that. Just, just another piece of evidence for me. But I don't know what to say about the suit. Could be his father. We, we, we have some sort of maybe there's a connection there. His father was an astronomer, though. It doesn't really sound like a guy that goes to work in a suit. I mean, we <laughs> if, also see an angry boy in his suit and stuff like that. Okay, good point. Yeah, good point. True. You're right. There's definitely a bit of imagery that is echoed there and... We're not going to go into what outfits the devil was wearing when, but we are going to go over all the shots that the devil was featured in and shown in the background of. Visual elements. My first one is the first one in the entire show, and it's my favorite, is that he's in the opening sequence of episode one as one of David's toys. Very sneaky. (laughs) And when David is hanging himself? Yeah, of course. And he's shown in the kitchen freakout multiple times. Just in the corner and walking around and stuff like that. 
And another one that is really sneaky but really awesome is that scene with all the television screens when David and Sydney are having their body switch. One of the screens just has the side of the devil's face. It just that's one of them is all these memories of David's childhood and Sid and one of him. And when Sid and David switch bodies, Sid sees the devil. Yeah, which, God, how terrifying. And when David meets Melanie for the first time, when he's rescued from the Division Three facility, there's the devil with yellow eyes kind of crouched in a little small cave kind of behind them. Yeah, and the it's bushes like, there. There he is again. Oh, so yeah, creepy. That one freaked me out when I noticed <laughs> that. I was like, whoa, he's right there. <laughs> yeah, and then obviously we mentioned earlier that Lenny turns into him when they're doing vapor and then... In his bad dream with Lenny in the stove, that's in episode three, the devil is flashing in the background like a hologram, which is just like David and Sid are when they're flashing and trying to see Amy there. Uh, And it also happens with Dr. Poole and David when remembering this memory, that they're flashing in this way. And we we mentioned that that he popped up behind Melanie in the book scene and when they all get separated in David's memories. So folks, if you caught... An appearance of the devil with yellow eyes certainly comments on this post on our website at fandomedia.reviews. I would be surprised if we caught every appearance of the devil with yellow eyes, but we maybe we did. There was one that we didn't list right there that was that he's also reflected in David's eye. Oh, yeah. Like, in there. Another kind of hint that he's part of him. Yeah. Which is because he only appears in memories. I think it's clear to... I, I think probably most viewers think it's clear that he is part of David and an embodiment of all these things. Maybe a tiny percent think that he's some outside... Personnel, I'm giving some thing? credence to that. I, it's a thing that I ponder a lot. That it's someone outside interfering with David's mind. I can't. I, we can't. Certainly can't eliminate that as a possibility. Can't. I favor the former theory, but I agree that it's viable. Yeah, your, your idea there. Yeah. Another thing that is a motif throughout the show is this motif of television. I mean, this is a television show, so it makes sense they might do it. But there might be other reasons that we see this. For instance. David's remembering these things is sort of like he's watching it from the outside like that. But it even gets into how comic book fans are theorizing that it's possible that there's a greater meaning to this in terms of there is a character in the comic books that has a connection to television who looks a little like this mojo. He has no connection to Legion at all. There is no reason to think that he would be taking this inspiration except that It makes some sense that you might take a tiny bit of inspiration, that you might see, oh, there's a character that has things that have to do with alternate universes and television. This is exactly what we're doing with Legion. Maybe I want to take some elements of that. Hmm. And I tend to think that if there are any inspirations from comic book characters, they're minor. Maybe it's Max Hedrum. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you've been able to tell, we're not getting into things like is the devil with the yellow eyes mojo is the devil with the yellow eyes shadow king that's not what we're doing here but it is possible that there's elements of those villains in the devil with the yellow eyes but to get into why these this television motif might be suspicious to people is that for instance when we see division three we see a bunch of people sitting on a stage watching something which really harkens to the idea that he's being watched in some way. And then we see Division 3 itself has screens everywhere, including on these weird bits of canvas. We see, again, the TV screens in the grass. And then when David looks at memories, they're in that old-style standard definition TV aspect ratio, sometimes curved on the, on the sides. So I think there's a lot of television imagery. I mean, even... 
at Clockworks itself. There are TV screens everywhere playing this one old black and white thing with people dancing. Hmm. Just the same thing all the time. Also, if the kid grew up watching TV, that'll be part of his memories. You know, the way he reflects on things or remembers things. What was on TV might not be the actual thing that was on TV, but a TV show he remembered from when he was a kid. Yeah, some weird thing with people dancing. (laughs) That is what he sees all the time at Clockworks, which again, makes me suspicious of Clockworks. Yeah. (laughs) Another thing that we see a lot of, a motif, is this red light. We see a lot of red cracks and red light when the doors go missing, when the Clockworks incident happens. There's red light everywhere. We see it, the dog in the cage, as we mentioned. We see it when... They're in David's memory there, and the cracks are coming through the walls. We see it over and over and over. And we see it with that red tennis ball. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of having seen the red light specifically associated with the devil with yellow eyes. I mean, we see it when when Sid has that experience, and the devil's flashing there, and her power, and David's power gets used. That's all red light. So I, I do think it is associated with him. I mean, when we see him... Can't we see the cracks coming in the therapist's office, for instance. We see red light there. Yeah. So I think it is, though it, it isn't maybe quite like super overt. He's not the devil with the red eyes, you know, for, in, for true, example. True, yeah. We certainly do see that the world's angriest boy in the world is associated with the devil as we he's in the suit, like we saw. And he also had red cheeks. I definitely took note of that. That, that is true. And fire. <laughs> he's burning yeah, things yeah. and there's blood everywhere. It's all related to that. Tiny detail that is of note, the book that he's being read, The World's Angriest Boy in the World, is written by someone named Heathcliff Marr. Whether that's just meant to be evocative of, you know, Wuthering Heights and being marred by something, or it's an anagram, or it's a character in the world, we don't know yet. Hmm. So... We had to move a bunch of this visual element stuff to next week's episode. Stuff like all the awesome transitions or the symbolism of the frog with the blue eyes or all these really interesting, relevant, very relevant things. There's so much to talk about. But we're going to talk a little bit about some of them right here. Like, for instance, one of the most impressive things in the show to me is the fact that they had to film the same scene so many different times with such slight differences because David looks at it through his memory and there's other characters in the scene or it plays out slightly differently. Yeah, it's almost like you can sort of get a sense of whether something is a memory or something else based on the backdrop and and how they show it. And if you see it two different ways, well, that's a sign. (laughs) Yeah. One interesting thing, for instance, is that uh, the production designer, that's Michael Wiley. We've mentioned his name a couple times before. He worked on Pushing Daisies, and that's why Noah Hawley wanted him originally. And there's a lot of similarities, actually, between Pushing Daisies and this show. But there's little production details that he used here, like the pictures hanging on the walls and his memories are all intentionally blurred so that the audience and, I guess, David can't see the faces. And they, of course, which is just a great little detail. And as he said, this is a quote from him that I think is super relevant. He said that because we're seeing this place subjectively through David's eyes, the colors change all the time. Sometimes we repaint the same rooms in different colors. The Mm. director of photography can also change the color of the room using the lights. So lots of times we'll go into a room and then go back into it and it'll be a completely different color, messing with people's perceptions about where they are and how real it is. So it's definitely on purpose. That's cool. I imagine that's fun to work with. As a filmmaking crew, because on one hand, there's probably little bits of continuity that they don't have to worry about as much in editing if someone didn't shave or have the same costume on that day or whatever. It doesn't matter because David's memories aren't perfect in the first place. But it also allows them to change things 
that they want to have represented in a certain way over and over again. Yeah, it must be very freeing, I would think. Very fun. They have a lot of really cool details in the background. We've gone over most of them so far, and the rest we're going to talk about next week. But two that we didn't bring up yet that definitely should not be missed are, of course, the obvious Lenny being in the mirror. This is when David is in his sister's basement. We just see her in the mirror um, looking very dead-like, actually, um, which is really creepy. Yeah. And this one was even creepier to me, and I didn't catch this one, actually, until I saw it on the subreddit, which is that... In that Halloween memory in episode three, there's, you see it twice, there's a a white sign in the backdrop that says in scribbly letters, David. Yeah, just really gives more evidence that this is just an invented memory or a very changed memory. Not actually what happened. Something is different about it or he's completely made it up. (laughs) Yeah, I also thought that was really weird when I saw that. Uh, I, I didn't catch it even the second time until Shay had me back it up and pointed it out to me. Yes. And I was kind of perplexed by it, like, what the meaning of that could be. It's a good example of what I said very early in this episode about how they just these really sneaky things. There's just almost no way you can catch by just watching the show. You have to like dig into the material and, and look at the, the sleuthing that's been going on or <laughs> yeah. do your own sleuthing like we have. Final thoughts. So I talked about how I wanted to go over the original script, which maybe you want to pause the episode and go look up Legion script and go find and read it. I don't know. But some of the things that I thought were most notable in the script were that, for instance, like we mentioned, Lenny was originally a man and they had very few lines changed. Like in the show, she likes Twizzlers, not cigarettes like she did in the script. And so... To build on that, I wonder if David would have smoked in the original script and not eaten Twizzlers in that episode in episode two. That would be weird to see him smoking in a mental hospital. They would not allow that. Yeah, so... They might allow it in the 60s. They might allow it if it's not real. (laughs) (laughs) If it's it's a delusion. (laughs) Uh, And so it's definitely a more uh, fun choice to have them into candy than into cigarettes. So I liked that choice. Also, notably, Carrie, female Carrie and Patonomy were very different in the original script as well as they were, as they had different names and female Carrie was a huge white man, which, I mean, it is true to what her character is and she's a badass. <laughs> so it's not maybe much of a change, but notable to know that maybe he didn't have everything figured out that early on. There's enough white men already. <laughs> I do wonder. <laughs> I do honestly wonder if that was some of the constructive criticism that Noah Hawley got on his original script when FX picked it up if they were like, let's change some of this around. It is in line with what FX has been doing in general the past couple years. But to get back to the script, two other things that I think are interesting, notable. In the show, David goes to his sister's house when it's Halloween and that's mirrored again in episode three when he has a Halloween memory. And in this original script, he gets to his sister's house. It's like March or February and the Christmas decorations are still up which is a pretty big change and just a, a very visual element that shows a lot how they can perfect the show to make it to have such a perfect aesthetic. Christmas just doesn't fit very well. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what would have been implied in the script that they would still have the decorations up that much later. They... It, it definitely implied things about them. And I think, I mean, I still have this implication for the characters now after reading the script that I picture that 
that Amy's husband is lazy or any number of things like that. Or maybe she's connected to it. She doesn't want it to end. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. she she was waiting for David to come home for Christmas before she took the derogations down. That's so a really sweet interpretation. Their father also died recently. Maybe that has something to yeah, do with it's, it. Yeah, it's a know? good point. I, I, all of that would have added a lot of depth to it, but I still think it works out better to show him showing up at Halloween because he's the monster and the kids ask, what are you? And yeah. It just, yeah. The aesthetic just fits it really perfectly. And for the final script detail, this one actually explained a lot to me in that when David breaks the lamp in his sister's basement, you see him immediately afterwards and he's sleeping and the lamp is fixed. And I thought it was David, the unreliable narrator, and the lamp wasn't actually fixed or it wasn't actually broken or I don't know what I thought. It it was just an example of that. In actuality, the script has that there's a moment where David uh, holds his hands over it and they start moving and he just puts it back together. He just, wow. So I think the reason to change that is that it shows that he has too much skill too early in the show. Yeah, that seems awfully skillful. Yeah, <laughs> All those yeah. shards and everything. But know. I wonder if we're going to see this like in a flashback, but this did happen in that moment. We just mm. didn't see it in episode one. It's possible. Maybe try yeah. to put a person back together. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a more comfortable environment, he can control the powers better. You know, he's like home, he's with his sister. Let me fix this lamp, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was really important that he fixed it. I mean, it seemed like yeah. that was a lamp that he had a lot of memories tied into as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it symbolized his father in some sense because the astronomy and it's the star lamp. That... Maybe it was a genie lamp. <laughs> they didn't want that genie to get away. Like the devil, genie with yellow eyes. <laughs> David. We're going to move on to our favorite and least favorite moments. Before we do, I just want to remind you all to check out the Legion survey that I posted. It'll be in the website post in the description. As of episode three airing, I got about 400 replies, and so hopefully by this time next week, I'll have over 500, and I can go into what the most popular theories are. Right on. That's cool. So, what was your favorite scene, favorite plotline, Aziz? I really liked the memory-slash-horror scenes in episode three, just that whole bit. I don't think I have a specifically favorite moment, just the whole dive into his memories the the fact that his powers are potentially blocking the trauma which is something that even Potomy can't get through just all of that was really well done at one point i looked down at myself when there was a commercial and i realized i was literally sitting on the edge of my seat <laughs> and so that to me was like whoa this i must be really into this i know i like this but i might be into this even more than i'm giving myself credit for <laughs> what about you Sean i had like in a broad way, I definitely started off talking about how I like that this is more of a, a character study than, uh, you know, a showdown between Superman and Batman, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but some specific moments I like was the dance sequence. I'm always going to appreciate any time when characters break into song and dance. And also another uh, more subtle moment was when Sid and David, quote unquote, kissed in their reflection. You know, I thought that, that was, nice, was a pretty yeah. sweet moment. Yeah. And a good cinematic trick, too. I think my favorite moment was also the dance scene. I loved it so much. Edited perfectly. The cinematography was gorgeous in it. I like the song itself. I like Serge Gainsbourg a lot. Uh, I also really liked the scene with David and Sid talking about their switched bodies. It was just a lighthearted moment that also had a lot of emotional depth. It added a lot to the character of Sid. That's, of course, when we get Sid talking about her backstory, stuff like that. I, I thought it was a really beautiful moment. And... I like just about any Lenny scene. She steals the show constantly. As for least favorite moments, like we probably generally agree on it. The weirdly bad action scene at the end of episode one and has him like stopping when they really shouldn't be able to stop and 
The visual effects aren't very good, especially when you compare it to how good they are throughout the rest of the show. It honestly made me wonder if it was on purpose. I agree. I think it might be on purpose. It may turn out to retroactively be a good scene. (laughs) Because it might make sense if it's all all or partly delusional. When I first started watching the show, which I was reluctant to in the first place, like, I guess I'll watch this superhero thing. But then halfway through, I was like, wow, this is really good. Man, this is going to be a good show. I'm excited about this. Until that last sequence. And that last sequence is like, oh, man, this is just some nonsense superhero action. I thought it wasn't going to be that. And I, I was a little slightly turned off to it. The rest of it was so good, there's no way I wasn't going to keep watching it. But I just lost a little enthusiasm. Until Shea pointed out to me this potential that those characters were in his mind. That there yeah. were different facets and maybe he was doing this. Or the whole scene might have been some sort of a... And that, and that added to my overall appreciation. What started off as a negative caused me to like the show even more when I started to consider the other things that might actually be going on in a show. And it has continued to impress me throughout. It hasn't just evolved into silly nonsense action. Even if there's not some explanation for that action scene later on that makes me feel better about it, I don't care because the rest of the show is so good. Uh, but I do constantly think about that scene and wonder how we're going to explain that guy who got shot that we haven't seen again. Sean so sleeps so and thinks about the scene. He wakes up just <laughs> thinking about that scene. <laughs> reviews. If you're looking for more Legion talk, I actually did an interview on another podcast, BoobTube Buddies. You can look them up on iTunes and everything and check that out. Uh, the interview with me is towards the end of the episode. It's a good interview, but there are no boobs on boob tubes. (laughs) A lot of boob tubes. (laughs) Very misleading. Signing off, I'm the fan with the yellow eyes. I'm Fan Stevens. And I'm the world's angriest fan in the world.